Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast recorded live on Clubhouse. We also put this up on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you hear fine podcast material. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and anything else in the culture. I'm opening this week with the uh, Air Force fight song, the theme song, Off We Go Into the Wild Blue Yonder, because we published a review this week of Malcolm Gladwell's new book about uh, Air Force strategy and bombing in at the end of World War II. So here we go. Real briefly, I'm going to cover uh, The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, a writer named Trevor Sigler wrote about it. Clubhouse only allows people at this point with iPhones onto the show, so Trevor can't join us because he does not have an iPhone. Basically, uh, The Bomber Mafia is uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, author of The Tipping Point and Blink and other books, has moved into what we can best call uh, what if Hitler hadn't been born territory. He now writes about revisionist history. He has a podcast called Revisionist History, and in his latest book, The Bomber Mafia, he talks about the debate about whether or not to uh, bomb Tokyo to um, end World War II. Using, uh, we used napalm for the first time uh, in, in Tokyo and uh, killed many, many thousands of people. Um, there was a debate uh, between um, Curtis LeMay, who uh, was famously satirized uh, in Dr. Strangelove by Stanley Kubrick and, uh, and Terry Southern, who wrote the, the film. He was a, sort of a mad bomber type. And then there was another uh, uh, character uh, that Gladwell writes about named Haywood Hansel, a young army aviator who uh, believed that precision bombing, not carpet bombing, would have ended the war. As it turns out, General LeMay won. General LeMay also was influential in our decision to drop the atomic bomb. And there you go. So uh, Trevor seemed to like this book. I you know, don't love Malcolm Gladwell myself. Uh, particularly, but you know, this uh, for lovers of World War II and World War II uh, speculative history, this one does sound like a good one. So uh, it's called The Bomber Mafia. It's by Malcolm Gladwell, and it is does not need my help in order to sell copies. Either does The Premonition by Michael Lewis, which is a book that I reviewed myself. This book made me uh, extremely upset. Um, the Premonition basically, well, Michael Lewis for those of you who don't know, is the author of Moneyball and The Big Short and other excellent works of, of nonfiction uh, literature. He's an, an incredibly uh, comprehensive and astute reporter, and he sort of specializes in uh, finding unexplained phenomena of putting a different angle on, on things that we, we seem to – that we don't understand very well. Like in Moneyball, for instance, he was the first – writer to really elucidate the sabermetrics approach to constructing baseball rosters uh, in the big short. He, he found people who were profiting off the 2008 financial crash. Uh, he was critical of the crash, but he also, um, so he found people who were sort of canaries in the coal mine were making money off of it, but also saw that the, the crash was coming and that it was going to be bad. Uh, the blind side, which was famously made into a, the movie that Sandra Bullock won an Oscar for acting Oscar. Uh, white savior narrative aside is about a new way of playing football, uh, constructing a offensive line, um, and therefore changing the way the football is played in the premonition. Michael Lewis tries to do the same thing to the COVID pandemic. He, his previous book was called the fifth risk, which pointed out that the Trump administration had basically dismantled the regulatory state, putting us in nuclear danger and all disaster danger and all other kinds of dangers. So the premonition is sort of the, the follow-up to that, and it shows what happens when the CDC isn't prepared for uh, a pandemic. I don't think anyone's going to argue that the Centers for Disease Control did a good job or continues to do a good job uh, you know, giving us warnings about uh, the pandemic, telling us, giving us advice about how to handle the pandemic. It's been a disaster. Uh, across two administrations for different reasons, but definitely uh, incompetent. That's in the book. That's in the premonition, and that, that part is fairly effective. But the thing that Michael Lewis does in the premonition that bothered me 
was that he focuses on the theory of social distancing. Uh, and for those of you who don't know this, and you know, I, weren't obsessively reading about uh, social distancing and um, uh, how do you call it? Preventative measures uh, against the pandemic early on in the pandemic, social distancing, the idea came from a middle school science project from a New Mexico girl named Laura Glass, who his father worked in uh, pandemic research. And she came up with this idea that uh, if you kept people further apart, that it would reduce the spread of disease. This became the predominant theory across the world. People using were using this uh, science fair project as as the basis for pandemic policy, for social distancing policy. And yet Lewis focuses on these doctors and these medical researchers who are apparently trying to warn the governments of the world about the pandemic and, and trying to get people to take it seriously and warning them that they have to socially distance, which I found strange because as far as I could tell, especially early on in the pandemic, people were following these guidelines and were social distancing. And the thing that's really the weirdest about this book is that Lewis continues to hammer home over and over again that we needed to close schools, close schools, close schools. And if we close the schools, it would stop COVID-19 in its tracks. Well, schools were closed and some places schools still are closed. They were closed in the United States. They were closed all over the world. The pandemic it still happened. Millions of people still died. And in addition to that, 3 million American children have dropped out of school entirely because schools were closed. So I'm disappointed in this book because I feel like, I mean, I feel like there is a way to present a counterintuitive look at COVID-19 and disease prevention that Michael Lewis could have uh, taken on that wasn't just, uh, parodying back received wisdom that you could have seen on Twitter in May, 2020. So I'm the only, I seem to be the only person in the world who doesn't like this book. And it's been, it's been, uh, uh, optioned by universal pictures. Uh, uh, Lord and Miller, the creators of the Lego movie are going to direct the adaptation. So this is going to become the common thread, the common gospel that if we just closed the schools and locked down harder, we would have prevented COVID-19 there were things that could have been done to prevent the the level of deaths that we had right that uh, we could have protected nursing homes a little 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 more carefully um you know in many states there were policies of putting covid infected people in into nursing homes that that you know that might have helped a little bit that might have ameliorated uh deaths by but to some extent yeah i don't know i mean i'm, I'm you know it, it's odd like i don't understand like why people think that this could have once it got out other than developing vaccines which are you know, are obviously have changed the game entirely to the point that, you know, in the United States, at least the pandemic is basically over. Um, other than vaccines, none of this appeared to work. And I read there, I read a comprehensive uh, history of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, um, which is often, which is cited in Michael Lewis's book and is cited by everybody as like, as the best history of, of the pandemic and uh, the great influence. I don't remember what it was called, the great influence or something like that. Um, and the guy comes to the conclusion that none of the mitigations that people took, and people took the exact same mitigations in 1918, uh, that without, they didn't have Zoom, you know, okay. So, you know, they, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, have, have Zoom uh, uh, dance parties with, with their, their friends and, and Zoom birthday parties or whatever. But other than that, it was the same. There was masking, there was social distancing, there were school closures, there were business closures, there were lockdowns, et cetera. He came to the conclusion that nothing worked. Nothing worked, and the disease was just going to run its course. Then, a week after I read that book, he published uh, a piece in the New York Times saying we need to social distance and mask. So I wonder if a lot of this is just kind of – if it was just politicized or we were just – we were trying to make a difference. We were trying to help. We were trying to stop this. Uh, but it clearly – like, I mean, India locked down hard. You know, India – which is having a horrifying COVID outbreak because they didn't get the vaccines out in India in time, locked down very hard and people were praising them for having prevented the worst of the pandemic in this, um, in this, uh, in, in the world's second most populous country. And then COVID hit and then they got 
you know, then, then they, they're, they're just, uh, it's running its course. And so, uh, you know, it's terrible. And I'm, I don't, I certainly don't, didn't want <laughs> nobody, they, nobody wanted this to happen. So I'm just, I, you know, and again, like, I'm not like an, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not, I'm, I'm just an armchair, you know, news Twitter follower of this story as well. I just found it a little disappointing that Michael Lewis wrote what essentially amounts to a very literary um, and very eloquent and very well reported bad COVID take uh, from from Twitter from uh, June of 2020. So that's my uh, that's my counterintuitive um, my counterintuitive take on the new uh, Michael Lewis book. No one's going to listen to me, but uh, you all are listening to me, and I appreciate that. And now let's uh, let's move away from COVID forever, hopefully, uh, and let's talk about something more important: the Golden Globes. I uh, want to bring Jake Harris up to the mic. Jake uh, has uh, been writing for us for a long time. This is his first time on the podcast, though, and it's actually the first time I've ever talked to him in person, which is one of the magics uh, magic of uh, running a publication on the internet in this day and age. I've never spoken to Jake Harris on the phone, but I have read and enjoyed and edited many of his articles. Jake, you can unmute your microphone. We are recording you on the Book and Film Globe podcast here on Clubhouse live, and it will be later aired on Apple and on Spotify. Hello, Jake. How are you? Hello. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm pretty well. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, you, wrote, you wrote a couple pieces for us this week. It's good to have you back on the site. Uh, we'll start off with uh, talking a little bit about what's going on at the Golden Globes, uh, the uh, fake award show that uh, consumes Hollywood. <laughs> uh, is now, is now fi- finally, I feel like finally, it's like like a, somebody pulled the mask off like at the uh, at the end of a Scooby Doo episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, I'm surprised it took this long. Like I, uh, uh, Alyssa Wilkinson over at Vox, uh, I feel like every year does a piece about how the Golden Globes are a sham and uh, goes in depth into what the voting body is actually made up of and how it's not actually. Uh, made up of mostly Americans, uh, but uh, in doing the research for this, I found uh, a Washington Post piece from 1996, and then a Vulture piece uh, from uh, 2015, in addition to the LA Times uh, piece that came out earlier this week. Uh, so that's at least three uh, articles uh, that have questioned why this award show even exists uh and i now the hollywood it's the the hollywood foreign press association quote-unquote that runs the golden Globes. yes they uh and they started out in uh 1943 um it was 23 foreign entertainment correspondents uh they got together to to get some favor with the studios and then the next uh year was actually the first golden globes they had a little fancy luncheon on the 20th uh, century studios lot uh and pretty much ever since then not 1944 but uh, a couple years later uh, in the 50s was its first uh controversy uh the president of the hollywood foreign press association resigned because he was wondering why uh yeah why awards were just given out as favors basically saying that a lot of the awards could be bought um and that uh history has kind of continued all throughout up until now when uh, the big news is that NBC announced that it would not be airing the Golden Globes next year uh, Tremen- after tr- the LA Times piece came out. Tremendous moral courage displayed there by NBC. Yeah, first just, they were... I, 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 I just find it so interesting that like after all the controversy and scandal that has surrounded the Golden Globes for decades, that the reason they're giving is that the voting body has no black people in it. That, that not the payola, not the junkets, not the shoddy awards, you know, not the poor judgment, but the fact that it's not diverse enough. That's very that seems very twenty twenty one to me. Yeah, and, and diversity and, and representation are they're important and that stuff matters sure. too. But yeah, I agree. But like, why did it take until now when you know there's the threat of you know, Twitter cancellation or you know all of that happening to you is why you decided to to pull the trigger on not wanting to broadcast it because they hadn't like the the history of this thing's broadcast has kind of been really shoddy as well uh, ever since it was on TV. NBC has aired it. Uh, 
for all, like cumulatively, like total, almost like 30 years of its existence, but it was off the air for a while after an FCC scandal in the 60s, and it went into syndication, and I think TNT and CBS had it for a while, so... Uh, and then NBC, when they finally got it back, they paid like a lucrative deal just to be able to to broadcast it. And so they're still in the middle of like a multi-billion-dollar uh, deal just to have the rights to have right. it. So I don't think it's going to go away, but like they're you know they're going to take time away to to work with it. Uh, after the LA Times piece came out, um, the press association uh, announced that they would be reforming the organization. They said they were going to have, uh, quote, a specific focus on recruiting black members, and they were going to put a goal of increasing its membership by 50% over the next 18 months because they only have uh, 87 members. Right. I, 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 black journalists probably are also um, susceptible to bribery, I'm guessing. You know, that's... That that's the thing about the yeah, whole thing yeah. about the Every, Globes, susceptible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so the whole thing about the Golden Globes isn't that it's um, not white, although that is true that it's not white, it's that it's corrupt, right? You know, the the story that you put in your piece that I loved was how um the the how Pia was it Pia Zadora won uh, a Golden Globe? Uh, yeah, she won she won a Golden Globe for, uh, for for a new star of the year in a motion picture was uh-huh. the category. Um, and then later I found out that she actually was in a, a movie as a kid. So it, you can classify, you know, former child actor or new star of the year when she was an adult, however you right. want to classify and this that. Was in, uh, this was, and this was in the early 80s. And she, she yes. her, basically, but basically she had a rich husband uh-huh. who bought off the committee. Yeah, he uh, he flew out uh, some of the committee out to Vegas to a hotel that he owned, and then paid for a nice fancy dinner uh, and screened the movie for him. And uh, after the award came out, people were saying that, oh, that's why, because he, he bought it off for her. Uh, <laughs> and then that happened again later with uh, that uh, Johnny Depp uh, movie, The Tourist, where Sony uh, also flew the I guess they think people love Vegas. Uh, Sony flew people out to Vegas for a trip out there uh, in connection to that movie uh, to hope that people would vote for it, and that didn't work. It lost, but uh, you know, <laughs> a and it's, long it's history funny, of that. You know, you're you're a journalist. You're a working journalist, right? You mm-hmm. have a day, yes. a, day, a day job, and I've worked as a journalist as well. You know, there are some some news organizations. I don't know about the one you work for, but you know, they they, they don't allow their uh, writers to take junkets, right? No, no. We, uh, I was uh, actually down in Austin uh, a while ago, and we had a thing sent, I think, and it was like a, like a Red Bull promotional thing or something or other, and it came with like cans of Red Bull, laptop cases, like fancy yeah. equipment, and we had to, you know, go through HR to be like, what's the monetary value of each of these things, and yes. can we keep it? And if it was higher than like twenty bucks, it was you know, no, we had to return it. Right. So you work you work for a company with some integrity. You know, I on the other hand, like I I've been, um, you know, I spent years writing about cars, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I was um, I was wined and dined and flown all over the world and given like lots of expensive. I mean, I, I did I was writing for companies that didn't that didn't care. Given lots of expensive right, yeah. and, and like free cars to drive and fancy meals and fine wines and all this stuff and you know then and, and all they want is an a quote unquote objective review in exchange right mm-hmm. uh, and gradually all that um, all that largesse kind of just seeps into your brain and that goes on I mean it, at least pre COVID it went on in the movie business right I mean my God these these some of these bloggers just you know they get blown to blown to they can, they get flown, they get premieres, you know, they, they're, they're, they're private screenings, fancy dinners, gift baskets, right? Right. Yeah, that yeah. all goes on. Yeah. And so the Golden, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting a little bit, but the Golden Globe <laughs> is, is like the uh, sort of pinnacle of that level of Hollywood corruption. Yeah. And then uh, once, uh, well, once, once the, piece came out from the times after instead of you know looking at all the corruption and the pale and all that uh nbc uh the the press association focused on reforming its its diversity um and then nbc at first was like yeah that's great like that sounds good you know you're gonna reform yourself we'll keep you on uh and then once they said that those reforms were going to take 18 months uh some organizations you know like time's up uh PR firms, Netflix, Amazon, Warner's, all a bunch of you know big name groups. They said that you know actually no, we're not going to work with you until you put 
you know, faster and better change in effect. Right. And then that was what caused we, NBC to say, no, we're going right. to wait and not hear it in the next year. Right. We, so, we, we, we demand that you give us a more diverse body of people that we can bribe. Yeah. And like <laughs> with the, with the, and the history of their nominations too, like the, I mean, the Oscars are kind of the same thing too, but, uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is the same group that slotted Get Out as a best musical or comedy a few years ago. <laughs> right. That's what prompted Jordan Peele to say, actually, Get Out is a documentary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so they've got right. a lot of other other stuff going on there. but uh, uh, Right, right. right. The, the Oscar, Oscar so white doesn't really apply anymore, but I guess it does apply to the Golden Globe. So. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. thank you, Jake. That's a great piece. You do these timelines for us. And uh, they're, they're always a, a lot of fun to read. So that's on Book and Film Globe this week. All right. So uh, next we're going to talk about a movie that no matter who is on the voting body of the Golden Globes probably isn't going to get a nomination, whether the, the Globes are on TV or not. Sarah Stewart, hello. Hi. Rotten Tomatoes appro- approved, uh, featured critic, longtime uh, film critic, contributor uh, to Book and Film Globe, Sarah Stewart, uh, who uh, also my uh, my uh, my college. We went to college together. <laughs> we weren't in the same year, but I I, I was going to say college. What uh, we didn't live in the same dorm, or we we weren't roommates. So no, we why. were. We sort of ran in the same circles. I think. Yeah, yeah, the same artsy fartsy journalism yeah. circles uh, in college. But anyway, Sarah, you uh, subjected yourself to um, this uh, movie that uh, premieres on Netflix today, The Woman in the Window. I did, yes. God, uh, God help you. God help you. Ill-advisedly, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, when we talked, when you first mentioned The Woman in the you were interested in writing about that for me, I was like, well, you know the history of this this movie, right? It's like it was. It's adapted from this book by AJ Finn, and AJ Finn pretended to be a woman, is a man pretending to be a woman who's sort of writing what you know he considered like a, not a parody of, but like he took all the sort of girl on the train, gone girl, the women novels of that of of the of the aughts, and like created the ultimate pastiche of them in the woman in the window, and it was yeah, controversial. It's like a- it's like a power smoothie of unreliable female narrator books. Yes. Yes. Well, exactly. And then it was, you know, it was a huge bestseller, very controversial. Um, and, and I read that book and uh, boy, was it stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have the pleasure of reading the book. Uh, yeah. So I, do, I don't know about the source material, but I can only imagine uh, uh, having seen this movie, which, which has this, um, ridiculously prestigious uh, creative team around it, which I was sort of shocked by. Uh, You know, you've got Joe Wright directing. Mm -hmm. Uh, His previous movie was Darkest Hour, the Churchill movie that won an Oscar for Gary Oldman. Uh, You have Tracy Letts uh, writing the screenplay. (laughs) The the Pulitzer and and Tony-winning Tracy Letts. Yeah. Was also in the movie, and and then you have uh, Gary Oldman and Julianne Moore and Amy Adams oh uh, starring, and uh, yeah, I just I, I was really wondering how all these people got involved. But as I'm as I'm looking at it, I I think that most of this happened before uh, the exposés came out around Dan Mallory. So I, I think there was even if you knew it was trash, uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't trash that had been kind of taken apart the way it was by the New Yorker in 2019. Right. Well, I think I think maybe the prestige uh, might have had to do with some uh, paychecks that, <laughs> <laughs> that were offered to these people. They, you know, Amy yeah. Adams does it. Far, last time I checked, she doesn't do movies for free. Um, well, and she she also did uh, she did Sharp Objects, the the miniseries Sharp Objects, which is sort of in the same uh, the same genre yeah. to to better effect on HBO. Yeah. Um, so, uh, right. So, but, and then another thing about the woman in the window too, is I was seeing it's, this has been floating around for a while. I was seeing previews for this movie in theaters a couple of years ago. So I Mm -hmm. feel, I feel like it's one of those movies that like was going to come out and then they were like, well, this is bad. (laughs) So maybe we'll delay it. And then the pandemic happened and that gave them even an excuse to further push it down the road. Right. 
Yes. So it was and delayed and delayed and, and it did some reshoots and, and rewrites. So and now it's just, it's been hacked up. They, they brought in Tony Gilroy to uh, rewrite some of the screenplay, I guess. And, and they reshot some stuff, although I don't know what that would be. It, the, the film is such a mess that it really could have happened anywhere. Um, and, and, right. and, you know, I mean, I don't want to give away the, the, uh, twists or there's a couple of twists in it, but it's like, you know, things are not what they seem right. But they kind of are what they seem like uh watching this movie. I, you know, and again, not having read the book, I, I said, uh, early ish on in the movie, oh, it's probably that person. And lo and behold, it's that person. Right. It's just not it's not that difficult to figure out. And right. the twists, you know, if you're familiar with, you know, this genre at all uh, are, are pretty easy to see coming. Right. Um, is there anything is there anything in the woman <laughs> in the window <laughs> that you could recommend? Well, yes. Yeah, so basically in my review, which I am going to uh, be filing to book in Film Globe shortly. Yes. Yes. Uh, what I, I mean, it is such a mess that it's kind of fun to uh, watch. I mean, it's just, it's on Netflix. You know, you don't have to pay for it. You might as well. Right. Um, and, and I think that just watching all of these people uh, tangled up in this, this movie that is trying so hard to be Hitchcockian, right? I mean, it's basically, you know, Rear Window is sort of the, the underlying um, homage, if you want to call it that. Uh, but there, you know, there's also all kinds of nods to Hitchcock in here. Uh, and if you didn't pick up on the subtler ones, she just watch watches Hitchcock movies throughout the movie. Uh, so it's oh, always, really? they're always on TV in the background. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so better, you know that. Be- so you can catch glimpses of, of, of better movies while you're watching this movie. Right, right, exactly. But it's also a fascinating exercise in just fundamentally not understanding one, how how things work in New York, and two, how human beings behave. I mean, you've uh-huh. got, um, you know, in New York, first of all, she lives in this enormous house in Harlem, right, on, on of a, 124th Street, you know, as people do in New York. And and people keep just, you know, she's an agoraphobe. That's her that's her deal. And people just keep stopping by. People keep appearing in her apartment just in a way that well, like people, on like, like on Like on Seinfeld. Yes, yes, just sort of bursting in the door, you know, uh-huh. as neighbors always do in New York City. Yeah. And uh and and also just everyone who comes into her uh home seems angry. Uh they just seem inexplicably angry all the time and well, and I have to imagine that, maybe these people are just angry at having been involved in this movie at all. That feels that feels very New York though. People are t- are angrier than average there. But. <laughs> I guess that's true. But I think, but, you know, given that you have Amy Adams stuck in her home, you know, for a long period of time, you would think this movie would be perfectly timed to come out right now. You know, that it would really speak mm-hmm. to some of what we've been through in the past year. And the fact that it doesn't at all is just such a spectacular failure. I think it kind of it kind of recommends it as a hate watch. <laughs> all right. So uh, this week's hate watch recommendation from Book and Film Globe. The Woman in the Window. We're going to pivot now into a successful adaptation, TV adaptation of a book. We're going to we're going to bring um, Stephen Garrett up to the mic. Stephen Garrett uh, has, is our uh, chief film critic. Hello, Stephen. Hello. But this week you're reviewing a TV show. You're like uh, you're like. Um, like a, like a big man who can take three-pointers. You're showing your uh, versatility. I don't know about that. I feel a little disoriented because I – and, you know, it's not uh, – well, and, and as I said in, in uh, what I what I wrote, uh, you know, I don't – it feels more like a preview than a review. I was right. uh, I was able to get um, an advanced look at the first two episodes of this 10-part of, series. Of, of the oh. – uh, let's add – of the Underground Railroad. The yeah. Underground Railroad, which is Barry Jenkins' adaptation of Colson Whitehead's uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning – uh, novel that came out right. in uh, 2016. Right. Um, uh, yeah. A, 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 a undisputed literary masterpiece, uh, instant addition to the American canon, um, the Underground Railroad. I mean, there's there's not a lot of arguing about that. And it sounds to me like uh, like uh, Barry Jenkins, uh, for at least from you again, you only watched the first two episodes. When when is the Underground Railroad uh, debut soon? Right on. on it's coming on soon. Uh, today, actually. Oh, okay. they dropped. Well, this is the interesting thing. They dropped all 10 episodes today and, you know, just reading other people's um, 
impressions and assessment of of the um, of the whole work. You know, one one uh, I, I read one person basically say, you know, it's a shame they didn't do it one a week because these are really dense um, yeah. episodes. Or maybe I, I've only seen two, but I I certainly feel like I've benefited from the fact that I wasn't allowed to watch any more than these two because it forced me to really just to mull them over a bit more than I might have if I was just gulping them down in one right. big ten hour sit. Know, the Underground Railroad is a very, it's a very heavy work of uh, of um, speculative fiction, let's call it, that that postulates that there was it's 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 science fiction in some ways postulates <laughs> that there was an actual underground railroad, like a train service that managed that helped slaves escape from slavery. Right, right, but I don't feel like it overwhelms the book and brings yeah. it into speculative or you know fiction more than. I mean, the book feels very much like a very heavily researched, yes, um, uh, you know, kind of revivification of of this horrible, horrible time in our country's history. Um, right. With the Underground Railroad being this conceit in the background, it almost feels like a magical conceit, um, yes, like a magic school bus, for lack of a better, you know, that's a horribly trite way to put it, but um, <laughs> yeah. it it seems to appear in convenient places in order to move the narrative along, so that you can then examine another part of this country in the way in which it's, it's grappling, wrestling, you know, with, uh, with slavery and racism. Right. Right. But there, you know, there are definitely, you know, for instance, you know, Colson Whitehead's depiction of slavery era, uh, South Carolina, is that Charleston, the city that they go to in, in South Carolina in this second yeah. episode, uh, it, it might be, they, they keep talking about the Griffin, uh, which, um, is the institution, this large building where they're all kind of interned. Um, yeah. in, in a dormitory, it's a school, it's a dormitory, it's, it's many different things that become more insidious as you learn more about it. But, right. you know, it's actually one of the things I have to say about Jenkins' adaptation, which maybe was out of necessity, but he's less specific than the book. Um, and again, maybe it's just because he's trying to focus on more of the um, emotional truth than he is the factual details. Right. Like he doesn't right. get – and maybe it's also because he's overwhelming you with so much stuff anyway – he doesn't yeah. want to to do yeah. even more than that, you know. Yeah, it, it doesn't really. It, so, it sounds. I mean, it doesn't sound like something you really want to binge. You know, it, it sounds like it, it's yeah. very, you know, you know, it's Barry Jenkins's work is not exactly light and fluffy. Well, you know, this is what's interesting too. I first of all, I totally agree. I don't think you would want to binge. I'm glad I was forced not to binge, and I will probably sip from this, you know, over the over the next few weeks, and you know, take one or two episodes every few days. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I, you know, Moonlight was an absolutely beautiful film. Um, but I feel like Jenkins needs to be processed in a certain way. I'd like also pay full disclosure. I'm white if you haven't figured. So I, you know, I didn't meet you. You are white. That's right. That's right. I, right. I, I can only speak as a white man appreciating, yes. uh, Jenkins work, which is absolutely rapturous. Sure. Um, but I, the first time I saw Moonlight, it was almost a victim of, of its own hype, and this was even before it was released. It was at the Toronto Film Festival, and they had it programmed on an IMAX screen. And watching Moonlight on an IMAX screen does not is a bit of a disservice to that intimate, beautiful, lovely portrait. You know, right? Um, right. It, no, it, you know, IMAX, IMAX is for Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's exactly. This is not you know uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, right. So I think. You know, uh, I think you need to be wary of how you watch him and, and give him his full focus and attention. Um, yeah. I feel like Moonlight was rapturous and also um, tortured in its own beautiful way. I mean, it's, it's, such a, it's such a tangle of different emotions that I think is really difficult to pull off in a successful way. And Jenkins did it admirably. Um, it I've, feels I've, I have a question for you though. Um, how how does you know it's a ten episode, it's a mini series essentially about slave, uh, you know, about uh, the legacy of slavery. How does the Underground Railroad compare, you know, culturally with um, the, the signature television event of my early childhood, Roots? You know, which, yeah. which you know, which was um, you know a groundbreaking show, and you know that that really changed the way we look at our history and at at, at the possibilities of television. In addition. Well, you know, it's really interesting. And actually, if, if I can finish my point, it dovetails yeah, with sorry. some question, which is that I, I think him moving on to if Beale Street could talk, I felt like that was almost too noble and too mm. respectful. And yeah. I didn't feel like it was as um, challenging to him creatively. And I think him doing Underground Railroad because of things like Roots and because of other depictions of slavery, 
it forced him to really um, challenge himself creatively and then yeah. to present images in a way that maybe hadn't been presented before, but also to challenge him to say, why am I presenting images uh, in the first place that have already been out there? What can I do differently? Right. I don't want to exploit it. You know, he, there were a lot of interviews that popped up over the past few weeks with him. And he talked about how basically he got beat up on Twitter, you know, when people saw that he was going to adapt this. And they said, look, I'm, you know, a lot of people were saying, I don't want to see myself as a slave. I want to see myself as a superhero. Like, why are you dwelling on this mm -hmm. horrible part of, of their life? And I think his main motivation was erasure. And I think his main motivation was also to show, to commemorate in a way that actually explains that this was this was about raising another generation, this communal uh, familial act of progeny, progeny, you know, getting another generation of people that could eventually escape slave slavery uh, if you just hang in there long enough and you keep, you know, going, uh, you keep. Mm -hmm. uh, you keep moving as as slaves. I don't know. Right. I'm 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 losing the words here because I feel like I'm being. Yeah. Well. Okay. Right. So I just uh, so I, all right. But back to your back to your. Sorry. Let me let me let me ask, answer your question. I, I haven't yet. Um, Roots, I think, was transformative because, um, as you well know, because you know at the time, I think the 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 mainstream view of slavery was the romanticizing of the South, the rose tinted whitewashing. Of you know having Uncle Toms and Mammies and all that kind of stuff and and I think that really blew that away and I think you know there were you know its precedents for things like Mandingo which you know in the in the black exploitation market there were already rumblings of like let's really represent how horrible and cruel this was Mandingo being like the lurid version and Roots being the prestige version um, but yeah no I think I think uh, I think what Jenkins is doing is adding to the conversation in a constructive way and in a very powerful, uh, maybe not as much as uh, Colson Whitehead's book, which really is so fantastic and so much richer. And I think if Jenkins' book uh, invites you to read the book, if it, if it attracts you enough that you want to do a little more research, then you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a fantastic supplement. I mean, it really complements the book in a wonderful yeah. way. Well, and you mentioned in your, your review. You mentioned the black gaze. Uh, that's that was that was you know, obviously Jenkins is is, is black, and um, you mentioned that as a as and a, his a, phrase and his phrase too. I would never dare yeah. to to say the black gaze. You know, I'm just quoting right. him in saying and he, that. And that's G A Z E. G G A. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry, yes. <laughs> um, because you could say both, probably. Um, but from uh, his point of view, yes, that's right. from his point of view. So you know, it just. It, it, because, like you said, like you know, slavery has been—you know—we've depicted it as as bad for a, <laughs> quite a while. You know, we've had prominent works of, of filmmaking. Twelve Years a Slave. We had uh, Django Unchained. Um, you know, which was—you know—had ha its own sort of magical realist uh, view of uh, the slave era. Uh, but it's a fantasy corrective, you know. And I and I felt yeah. also that Twelve Years a Slave, which I was not a fan of, and every time I talked about that film in a critical way at the time when it came out. It was kind of like, oh well, yeah. you're a white guy, so you don't have you don't have a say in this. Yeah. But it felt like a British scold. It was like, yeah, I know America sucks. You know, like the the hero white was <laughs> was uh, Brad Pitt from Canada, right? Like he played a Canadian guy who was like, right. wow, slavery is really awful. It was like, come on, man. And I feel like Jenkins we know, just we feels, know. Well, I feel like Jenkins is 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 tackling the material in a more honest way and a more ambitious way. Then I think Steve McQueen's approach, as gorgeous as it was, the guy is an amazing filmmaker. Gorgeous is maybe the wrong word, as yeah. as powerful as it was. Yeah. It still felt like low hanging fruit. I still felt mm -hmm. like I was watching, you know, moments that could have been in Roots. Getting back yeah. to your original point, you know, right? And so, I, I, it, yeah, yeah, it felt like it didn't feel original to me. I mean, it, you know, it's. I mean, you're not. No, no one's going to say that's a bad movie, but. It definitely uh, uh, was kind of Oscar bait. Whereas this, this, I mean, I have, I have not seen, I have read the Underground Railroad. I've not seen it. Sounds a lot more challenging. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, it, doesn't, it sounds like to me. I'll be honest. It sounds a little bit like eating, eating taking your vitamins. You know, oh, eating for your sure. vegetables. It's, it, for you know, sure. So definitely, it's definitely like not something you're going to sit down and be like, let's have a, let's have a, you know, family fun binge with the Underground Railroad. You know, well, you know, it's so. interesting. I was talking to a friend who had also seen what I'd seen, and he said he was not as uh, a big a fan. And he said the episode one basically feels like Roots, you know, and uh, episode two is where it, for him it got a little more interesting because it felt like an episode from that series, Them, or from 
Lovecraft country because it, it does feel a little more Twilight Zoney and a little more eerie. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it's not as explicitly about the plantation because they're not on the plantation at that point. So I think and I hope yeah. that you know uh, the rest of the mm-hmm. series will explore those ideas and notions of racism throughout other states because it will move from one state to another. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, that's the Underground Railroad now on Amazon Prime. Back to Netflix now. Uh, we're going to welcome Kimberly Christman Campbell to the podcast. Uh, Kim- Kimberly, welcome to the show. You, you you have not been a guest on the Book and Film Glow podcast before. No, Neil. It's great to be here. Yes, hello. Uh, hello. So Kimberly is a frequent contributor, longtime contributor to the site, and uh, in addition to being an excellent writer and an astute critic, is a fashion historian, uh, a, a doctor, a do- like like Jill Biden, an actual doctor. Uh, <laughs> You have a doctorate and uh, apply your, uh, your your writing skills. Uh, you write for us and for the Wall Street Journal and for other publications. Um, and uh, you um, you uh, chose a very appropriate for a fashion historian, a very appropriate topic this week. A new miniseries from Ryan Murphy on Netflix uh, about the designer Halston. Yes, I've been looking forward to this one. Um, and it, it is produced by Ryan Murphy, but it, it was actually oh. directed by uh, Daniel Minahan, although Ryan Murphy did some of the writing and was obviously very involved. I mean, it's, you've definitely got the Ryan Murphy stamp of approval on it. Right. Meaning it meaning it's got a, it, meaning it's very campy. <laughs> Lots of musical numbers. <laughs> so so it's so it's not so there's musical numbers in, in, in a miniseries about a fashion designer. Yes, because Halston's best friend is, of course, Liza Minnelli, and she gets oh. to sing and dance and, and be Liza in this. Uh, How much plus, of that of course, is there? Because I because because this you know, this sounds very, <laughs> I have to admit you know this sounds this sounds appealing to me. <laughs> you know, I I am not a Liza fan particularly, uh, but I really enjoyed um, uh, her her part in all of this, and I, I'm glad she was there. It's it's I, I don't think you can play Liza without. Um, pissing some people off um that's mm-hmm. inevitable but i i think this this is a performance uh that could have so easily tipped into caricature and doesn't um so it was played by chris rodriguez who you might remember from smash um mm-hmm. who you know is a wonderful singer and dancer and looked exactly like um judy garland if not liza mm-hmm. and who really i think uh is, is necessary to this project because she, she balances out some of the, the bitchy, um, you know, angry side of Halston. Yeah. So Halston, uh, is played by Ewan McGregor. Um, yes. not, not, not typically known as being bitchy or angry in real life. <laughs> no, he, he is a straight Scotsman playing a gay Midwesterner and uh-huh. that that's maybe a counterintuitive choice, uh, and definitely controversial, uh, I, I really enjoyed him. Um, you know, I, I was reading this morning, Tom and Lorenzo, who are gay men, thought he did a great job. They couldn't believe he wasn't gay. Uh, so I, I didn't have a problem with his casting at all. But I thought it interesting that he said in interviews um, with The Hollywood Reporter that that he felt like, even though he was conflicted about playing a gay man uh, when the part could have gone to a gay actor, he felt like this wasn't such a problem because the story doesn't focus on Halston's sexuality. Uh, but you, you at, cannot tell the story all. of Halston without sexuality. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he gets naked in this. We see him picking up prostitutes. We see him having sex. Yet in a way, he's correct because sexuality is kind of the elephant in the room. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's on screen, but it's not really explored in a serious way. I mean, Halston's clearly conflicted yeah. about his sexuality. But neither he nor the filmmakers really seem interested in exploring why or how that affects him. Huh. So, uh, so what? So, what is the show about? This? So, is it mostly about like the the, uh, the drama of the fashion industry? You know, that's a great question. What is it about? Because it's not really about his sexuality, and it's not even really about fashion. I mean, that we get a taste of his design process, but it's really not the focus. Uh, I would say more than anything, it's about branding. It's about 
you know, how he built this brand uh, and then destroyed it. And there's a lot of that kind of back business feeling in it that may not be what people expect from a movie about Halston. It does have all the, the fabulous trappings of you know, fashion and a society and Studio 54 and celebrity, but it's very much about his business and how it got so big and how it went so wrong. Hmm. So, so it's a, like a boardroom drama almost. Kind of. I mean, Bill Pullman plays the the CEO of Norton Simon that that owns the Halston label, and he's there, kind of giving Halston advice and kind of you know trying to give him freedom, but also trying to keep him from self destructing, and and that's that's all very true to life. I mean, that that was a real person, and that that was pretty characteristic of their relationship. Uh, but you know, Halston is going to be Halston, and he he is. Um, you know, a very damaged person in ways that maybe aren't fully explained in this show, but um, are kind of there in the broad strokes. Um, it's uh, kind of an Icarus story about, you know, Halston building this business, building a found family, but then he flies too close to the sun and his office is literally like up in the clouds in the Olympic Tower among the church spires. Right. Uh, and he becomes so successful, uh, whether out of talent or greed or luck or a combination of them all, it's not necessarily defined, but it's clear that there's there's nowhere to go but down. Right. And uh, in reality... I know, I, you know, I know the feeling. <laughs> in reality, neither his rise nor his downfall happened as quickly as it does in these five episodes. I mean, this is 30 years compressed into five hour-long episodes or thereabouts. Right. It's amazing um, how fast downfalls happen in movies. Yes, yes. It, it's it's a very tight downward spiral. From Wait a second. How does, how, like, how does someone become a, 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 a drug addict in two scenes? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, that's another issue, though, because he starts off being very judgy about other people doing drugs and staying out all night, and he doesn't want any part of this, and then suddenly he's all for it, and it's yeah. actually destroying well, him. Dr- that drug drugs will do that to you. Uh, all right, so, so so real quick, I want to ask you because this is your area of, of uh, extreme expertise. How are the clothes in this movie? Yeah, you know, like I said, they're you know they're kind of in the background. There was one really glaring error in um, Studio Fifty Four when Bianca Jagger has her birthday party and rides a horse onto the dance floor. Um, she's wearing the wrong dress, uh, which is odd because it's such a famous and much photographed incident. But of course, this was all done without the cooperation of the family and the Halston archive. And there, there may have been some copyright issues there. I don't know. They didn't let, they didn't let Bianca Jagger wear the right dress. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why they did it. She's in this very sparkly gold dress. Maybe it looked better on screen. That was, that was kind of a curious choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, if if you don't know your fashion history, the timeline might be a little confusing. I mean, I gotta say, I gotta say that is a complaint that not only you could have, but <laughs> you're one of the few people on earth well, who would notice that detail. That, that's a pretty famous dress. I don't, I don't think I mean, that's just on. me that would have a beef with that. Maybe uh, not but, just you. I didn't say just you, but it's like percentage-wise of all of humanity, very few people would watch that scene and be like, "Oh my God, Beyonce Jackers <laughs> wearing the wrong dress." <laughs> well, you know, one one thing everything said about Halston is that he could you know, take a piece of fabric and a pair of scissors and make two snips and you'd have something absolutely stunning. And, and yeah. you do see that on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I appreciated you know, seeing that process. I wish we'd seen more of it. Um, but you know, as I said, the, the, the fashion, the, the design isn't really the focus. We, we don't get a lot of those kind of quiet moments of inspiration. When we do, they're great, but there's a lot more sort of the flamboyance and the partying and the, yeah. you know, the personal drama. It's got some uh, appeal to me, um, and, and I'm trying to think about are there show are there other sh- uh, shows or miniseries about fashion that this that this summoned up for you? Well, there's a great documentary on Halston that uh, came out a couple of years ago, and there's also a documentary on the Battle of Versailles, the 1973 fashion show that he participated in. That's also very good, and I, I think if you've seen both of those, um, this will this will ring true to you. I mean. It, the they got the the office and the homes right you know they they got sort of the the excitement of of Halston's world right um, are, are a lot of a lot with, of those are you familiar with the Ryan Murphy mini series about Gianni Versace that does, does this relate to that at all I, you know I think so and, and again that that was very much a a slice of his life rather than a bio, like sort of a biography um, 
really more about the murderer than the murderee. Um, this, this is more, more of a broader scope, but, but because it's only five episodes, you know, I, I feel like they, they skipped a lot. You know, Elizabeth Taylor's not in this. Um, oh. Andy Warhol's not in this. A lot of the people you might expect to see aren't in it. Mick Jagger's yeah. not in it. Bianca's literally a cameo. Um, you know, his entire family is not in it, um, mm-hmm. whether because they cooperate or because it just wasn't germane to the, the story they wanted to tell. But, you know, at one, at one point, a, a family member dies and he's broken up about it, but you have no idea why or what their relationship was. Right. All right. Well, all right. So Halston airing on Netflix, I would call that a mixed review, but it sounds like it's got some fun stuff in it. Yeah, it, it looks great and it's fun to watch. Um, how deep it goes, we could argue about. And, and you yeah. know, the, I, I had some problems with the script, the characterization. I thought Ewan McGregor was amazing, but he didn't have a lot to work with be, besides being kind of a stereotypical, sort of bitchy, flamboyant gay man. Um, right. Josh Whedon series on airing on um, now airing on HBO HBO Max. I don't know what you call it anymore. Jake, you you there? Yes. Hello, nice. hello. All right. So you were you you um you wrote a, a piece about this uh, the Nevers, uh, which is on HBO Max. Um, it is a uh, sounds like a sort of another one, a sort of another superhero show, like a steampunk superhero show. Very very yes. Josh Whedon. Yeah, but uh, your enjoyment of this show is probably going to depend on how much you like Joss Whedon, uh, for better or worse. Uh, no one likes Joss Whedon anymore. <laughs> uh, the, the work of Joss Whedon, I should say, uh, yeah. rather than the, the persona. Um, so this is his first return uh, back to TV since uh, Dollhouse in the early aughts. He's done a couple uh, directing gigs for some TV shows since, but this is the first thing he's created. And basically it's like if you took every Joss Whedon show and threw it in a blender with some X-Men and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and added some steampunk and then you get this show. Uh, uh and basically what happens is it's Victorian England, and one day this spaceship that looks like a, a giant fish type thing, I don't, it hasn't really explained what it was or what the, the cause of it was, uh, flies over the city one day, and um, it spreads like little golden fairy dust all over London. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like the prologue of the show. And then it cuts to three years later where the effect of that was that... Everyone who was in the vicinity of the ship now has these things called turns, uh, and the people who were affected are now called the touched. And so every person's turn is different. Um, it's unclear whether or not it already uh, accentuates skills that you already have. Like one doctor can now use his hands to miraculously heal people, um, but then other people... Um, they either they can become like super tall or they start speaking different languages or they can like physically see like potential and kinetic energy mm-hmm. um all sorts of crazy stuff like that and the, so if the, i so if i'd been touched my power would have been like watch can watch a lot of tv <laughs> or or you know like it's something random like i don't you can make a perfect omelet or something i don't know it, oh, it's very well, yeah, unfair really like... really good caesar salad <laughs> uh <laughs> And uh, the the interesting thing is it's mostly women that get affected by this. So far, there's only been, uh, I think, two or three men that the show focuses on that have been touched. Mm-hmm. Um, I think an interesting choice that it could have gone with was just to go full out, like, this only affects women, and it's a show, like, only about women superheroes. I feel like that mm-hmm. would have been a more interesting uh, track to take with this. Um but for the most part, it's uh, the the pilot at least is very uh, very dense. It introduces a lot of conflicts, a lot of villains, and a lot of subplots all in one hour. Um, and I watched the first uh, two episodes that were available uh, at the time for this review, and I've since gone back and watched everything else that's available. Um, there's only five episodes out right now, but it it gets a little better as it goes along with explaining kind of what's going on. But even in the fourth episode, they introduced like another type of villain subplot uh going on uh so it's just it's a lot to follow and it's a lot of just plot without of a, a lot of understanding why the characters are making some of the decisions they make 
I just feel like, you know, we're just, we, we, we're existing in this, in, in this, uh, pop culture world where they're, they just keep throwing more of these super universes at us where we have to like follow all these narratives and all these characters and everyone's got these special powers and it just, it feels like an endless, um, you know, a number of these shows. There's like two shows right now about teenage superheroes. There's one mm-hmm. on Netflix that's real popular. There's one on Amazon Prime that's real popular. And, yeah. I, I, and I don't know. It just feels this feels like another one that we that that we have to try to absorb. It's just it's a basically a, it's basically a comic book. Yes, basically. Like there is a lot of like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, type of stuff here uh, in that comic book vein, and also it feels like not quite an attempt at like Game of Thrones level. Juggernaut, but I think definitely HBO before this, before all of the toxic workplace and harassment allegations came out again uh, about Joss Whedon, I think they kind of looked at this as like, oh, it's his return to television and it's Joss Whedon, so we're going to have at least a marginal hit on our hands. And according and I guess to my, my question to is, the, do they do they have a marginal hit on their hands? I don't know. I I really don't know because according to their like self-reported numbers, right? Like streaming numbers are always iffy to to look at as gospel because it's people reporting their own stuff but they said that um hbo said the pilot got uh a little over 1.4 million viewers like on hbo proper and then it got a lot of replays on the streaming service on hbo max and they said that was a record um but a record against what uh right sunday night shows or just general shows i don't know um and the interesting thing is like i I seem to be seeing a lot more, at least, social media chatter about Mayor of Easttown uh, than this show. Yes. Um, so I don't know how much of a like social consciousness uh, this show well, is. But and I think that's a, that's a, we got to make that transition. Then that's that's, that's it's, it's almost too obvious, but we are actually going to talk about Mayor of Easttown right now. So Jake, <laughs> thank, th- thanks for stopping. We'll, we'll catch you next time. I know you'll be writing more for us. You got our are a frequent contributor to the Book and Film Globe, and it's, it's great, great to have you on here. All right, thanks for having me. All right, take it easy. Mayor easy. of Easttown, on the other hand, uh, and Katie Smith, uh, our, uh, our, our fly on the wall of literary Twitter, pivoted this week to writing about uh, writing about TV because uh, Mayor of Easttown is a, is a very uh, buzzy show starring Kate Winslet as a Philadelphia area detective. And, yes. Uh, and, and Lucky yes, me. And, yeah, lucky you, right? But, you know, Katie is a Philadelphia native and a resident of Philadelphia, you know, the, the, the glamorous, uh, most glamorous city in America. And, uh, and, and one of the most depicted. And so, uh, and, and, and he wrote a piece for us, sort of a review of the show, but really it's just a piece about Kate Winslet's accent. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty specific. <laughs> uh, well, because you actually have uh, have experience like with the Philly accent itself. I do. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I was thinking as I was listening to this podcast, I was like, I probably should have like called my mom or my aunts or something before this, so that way maybe my accent would be a little stronger on the recording. But um, I feel like I have a pretty um, okay, pretty passable Philadelphia accent. Usually those long O's, like in home, mm-hmm. really, uh, really are like a dog whistle for me being from the Northeast, but whatever. Um, but yes, I studied linguistics in college and I worked as a transcriber for the University of Pennsylvania's linguistics department, only transcribing people's Philadelphia accents. So um, you're, you're like the best qualified apart- person to review Mayor of Easttown's accent uh, work <laughs> in the world. I, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. As, apart from just, you know, living and spending most of my adult life in the Philadelphia area, surrounded by really ugly and amazing accents. So yeah. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Yeah. You were, you were, you were born for this piece. Uh, and so, <laughs> how, so how does Kate Winslet do? Does she, does, does she uh, approximate what it's like to sound, to sound from Philadelphia and environs? Um, all right. So I feel like if she, I appreciate the effort. Um, and she does a pretty good job. Clearly, somebody sat down with her and trained her to al- always say, um, you know, home and phone and overdose with that, like, kind of gross, like, EU sound um, that I, I don't know that my natural accent really approximates, but it's, but it's more like, you know, like home or phone or whatever. 
Or, um, all right, so overdose, that seems like a key word for this, for this show. Yes, their show. yes, yeah, yeah, because I mean, the show itself is a pretty gritty, you know, there are uh, women being murdered left and right in yeah. this Philadelphia suburb show, so, um, yeah. It's, and there's it's also, an, also, there's also, a Phil, there's Philadelphia actors across the board, you also, you uh, sort of praise and also make fun of uh, the actor Evan Peters. Oh my most, gosh, recently, yes. most recently seen in WandaVision. Um, yes. But, but he, uh, I, I, I you, you put a scene, you uh, featured a scene. I, I, I enjoyed his acting in that. Oh my God. Honestly, I like have watched it so many times, probably every day this week since I saw it because it's so good. And it just sounds like, I don't know, per- perhaps it's like something in my psyche, but it's just so satisfying for me to listen to. What does it say exactly? <laughs> Let me see if I can pull it up. But, um,. Uh, he is coming back from his, I think, 15-year high school reunion at Ridley yeah. High, which is a Delaware County institution, mm-hmm. and he's just like, you know, post-game with the boys, just that O-I boy sound is so satisfying to me, um, and you I don't say, know, really. You said, uh, post-game with the boys, we had our 50-year high school reunion tonight, over tonight at McGillian's Ridley High Raiders class of 05. No, I don't do a Philly accent, my accent is... I'm, I grew up in Phoenix, which has no accent. Right. <laughs> I'm the right. most generic American voice imaginable. But, uh, but yeah, but that, but that scene that it, it was, you know, what you pointed out, it was pretty, pretty extraordinary. It is. And, um, it's definitely one of my favorite examples. I, I spent most of my life in Philadelphia, but I, uh, lived in Austin, Texas for a few years. Mm-hmm. And when I would live there and try to point to examples of what it sounds like to be from Philadelphia, I often only had these like heinous, gross, SNL sketches, like I put one in my review, James McAvoy does like a really gross um, impression of like a Philadelphia Eagles sports fan talking about Charmin um, toilet paper that I often would send people as an example. Um, But this is like really solid and like not that offensive. Yeah. (laughs) Like not that much a caricature. You point out they get a lot of other details, right, too. Like they are, they're eating, they spend a lot of time eating, eating at Wawa, right? Or Mm -hmm. buying Wawa. Oh, yeah. at the Wawa convenience store chain, and you, oh, you yeah. actually know you actually know two people named Erin McMenamin. McMenamin, who was like one of the first women to die in the show. Her name is Erin McMenamin, um, and my I watched. And you actually uh, know two of those. I do. Um, Philadelphia is yeah. a pretty Irish Catholic community, so the uh-huh. Marianne's and the Mary Kates and the Mares and the Aarons and the Shavans and the Sheans, like that's all super accurate. Um, yeah. And, and then I the, wa- the other the other thing you mentioned, I love it. Well. Mar- uh, Mayor, I guess Mayor is, um, is that's Kate Winslet, Winslet's character, right? Yes, I think it's Mary, uh, Marianne is her name, but shortened uh-huh. to Mayor, which, Mayor. which tracks. And her mother play, is played by Jean Smart, uh, the current queen of HBO Max, and she oh, calls yeah. her daughter, and I have some, some friends from, uh, either Philly or from South Jersey who love this. They call, she calls her a smacked ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is one of those phrases that I like grew up with my mom calling me or other people a smacked ass. Yeah, what, that, what does that mean? That you, you messed up somehow or? Yeah, but also like, I think there's like a level of arrogance that's weaved in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know, like my mom would often use it for like, like dumb teenage boys who were like, you know, I don't know, getting in over their heads. You'd be like acting like a smacked ass. Well, I will say this, you, you are not acting like a smacked ass uh, on <laughs> the globe. You've been on a real roll lately. And this piece is great, and it ran this week. So, Katie, thank you so much. And with that, we come to the end of another fine episode of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Again, I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV, and this is the sound of Philadelphia, the real Philadelphia accent, T-S-O-P. I'd like to thank all my contributors who... Join me this week. I am so fortunate to have the best writers on culture in the United States of America and beyond contributing to this website. I'm a very lucky man and a very lucky editor, and I am very grateful to you for listening to us this week. We'll see you next time.
I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Bookandfilmglobe.com.